Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. This is just to let you know that we now have a Twitter feed. Check us out at, at @elucidationspod on Twitter. And of course, you can also, as always, check out our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Leave us your comments. Thanks. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Philip Pettit, Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University and Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University. And he is here to talk with us about corporate rights and responsibilities. Philip Pettit, welcome. Thank you. So... To some people today, I think the, the very idea of talking about um, corporations being the kinds of things that could have rights and responsibilities might seem somewhat suspicious. I mean, we, we talk about people having rights and responsibilities, but corporations are really different. And it might seem like an odd idea that we could talk about them as having rights and responsibilities. So why would we think that they did? Why would we think that this was an important thing to talk about? Well, I think that it might be better to start with the idea of responsibilities. Let me just tell you a story, of, because it's a story that actually influenced my own thinking about this. In 1989, the Herald of Free Enterprise, which was a, a sea ferry operating between Holland and Great Britain, sank in Zeebrugge in Holland, and I think nearly 200 people lost their lives on that occasion. There was an outcry, as you can imagine. There was a government report... And the government report said about the company involved that it really was had a dreadful culture, that the ethos of the company was responsible for the deaths, I mean, nearly 200 deaths, mainly because it wasn't that the people on that particular ferry did anything unusual on that day. In fact, they followed procedures that had been long laid down within the company. It's just the procedures were extremely uh, sloppy and indeed had not been subject to review or every review had been done over the years was always itself quite sloppy. And um, they argued strongly that the company as such, rather than any individual as such, was really the one that was blameworthy, the entity that was blameworthy. As a result, the, the British government actually took that company to court and charging it under criminal law. And the court finding was very interesting, which was that they argued that a company, not being an individual, an actual person, could not be held criminally liable under English law at the time, and that since actually you couldn't identify any individual who had been particularly responsible on that occasion by virtue of either omission or doing something uh, sloppily, that no one could really be held seriously culpable or liable. There were some minor charges brought successfully, I believe, but there was a general outrage, which I must say I felt reading about it at the time, that this could happen, that a company could be identified under a perfectly good report using common sense notions as responsible for these debts, and yet under law could not be recognized as responsible. I think that's what really stimulated my thinking about it. Now, I suspect that most people feel, yes, it is possible for a company to be responsible, meaning it's an entity that's fit to be held responsible. There's nothing incoherent about laying the blame at the door of an entity of that kind. Or think about the BP disaster, you know, just some years ago. I mean, nobody balked at the idea that BP should be held responsible, or indeed the other companies involved. Or think of the Exxon Valdez and the company involved there, the environmental destruction in Alaska. Again, no one balked at that. So I think the idea of a company being held responsible actually has a place in common sense. Now, one interesting development actually in British law is that partly as a result, I think, of outrage over the uh, Herald of Free Enterprise in the British government in, I think it was 2007-2008, actually passed an act, the company's Corporate Manslaughter and Homicide Act, I believe it's called, under which it does become possible. So, you know, my first answer really is that surely that does, you know, resonate in common sense, that we should be able to hold entities of this kind responsible. 
Uh, that's the starting point, as I feel. Okay, so that seems to be a case where intuitively we really want to say that a corporation is responsible for something. What about if you go in the other direction? Does it also fall that corporations can have certain entitlements or rights? Well, I guess the thing is that rights and responsibilities are complementary in a sense. That, first of all, if a system, uh, let's use the word system, that applies to a corporation, which you might think of a natural human being as a system, an entity. A system or an entity, in order to have responsibility, to be held responsible rather for something it does, well, first of all, you have to regard it as an agent. And then the next point to see, I think, is that if a system constitutes an agent and we're going to allow it to operate, then we have to give it rights, meaning we define the range of activities that it is allowed under the law to exercise without being subject to obstruction by others. So if you say, okay, this is an entity that is an agent which we can hold responsible, then I think of the same breath, you have to say, and of course that means it's a, an entity that we assign certain rights to, meaning we allow it to perform as an agent in a certain range of, of activity. And that of course then leads to the question which I know uh, you've both been focused on, which is in what sense a company is an agent, what it means to be an agent, and what sense a company is an agent. Yeah, and, and maybe it's worth saying, I mean, before we get onto that, just something a little bit more about what it is to be an agent at all. I mean, that might not be a term that's familiar to everyone. So when we talk about agents, we don't mean like James Bond or CIA agents, right? So what, what do we mean in general when we talk about an agent in philosophy? Good. First issue is, do we include animals as agents? Now, my inclination is very much to include animals and say that they are agents just as much as we individual human beings are and I would say just as much as corporate entities are, the sort of corporate agents that we form as human beings. So then that means you've got to have a concept of an agent that applies across the animal to human to corporate domain, so to speak. And the, the most encompassing sort of notion I think says this, an agent is first of all it's a, an entity or a system which has certain goals or purposes. I don't think you, if you can't identify goals or purposes, it's not going to be an agent. But not only must it have goals and purposes, it must pursue them in a way that's responsive to how things are in its environment. In other words, it doesn't always do the same thing because doing the same thing won't be appropriate always for advancing its purposes. It's got to vary how it behaves as environment varies. And that means you've got to assign to it not just purposes, but representations of indeed how the environment is and now what is an agent well you can sum it up in one slogan really which is it's a slogan indeed that david lewis used to use that an agent is a system that pursues certain purposes according to its representations and of course if it's going to be a successful agent a system that reliably secures those purposes then the representations that guide it have got to be on the whole, pretty reliable. So it's got to have representations that alter as the environment alters, that update with incoming evidence, and it's got to be guided by those. It's also got to have representations that connect appropriately with its purposes, interact with them, producing action. So an agent is a system, you might say, that advances its purposes, as I say, successfully according to representations, which means according to representations that are themselves responsive to the environment. That's the the sort of umbrella notion of an agent. Now, human beings are very special sorts of agents. I mean, the big issue is what is the difference between human agents and animal agents, meaning non-human animal agents. So, yeah, just to dwell briefly on what you said there. So you talked about systems with purposes, and, of course, we might imagine, well, my iron at home is a system with a purpose, or you know, various kinds of machines are. And it seems like the reason that you wanted to talk about representations is that my iron at home or my stove or whatever might do certain things, but... If I just leave it to itself, if I leave the iron to itself, it's just going to burn a hole right through my sweater that I'm ironing. It doesn't in any way represent its environment to itself. It doesn't respond exactly. to what's going on around it. There are some mechanical systems, of course, that do respond. Like, for example, the air conditioning system. It goes on and off depending what the ambient temperature is. 
But again, that's very restricted in its environmental sensitivity. And besides, we all know that there's a very straightforward explanation in the inner workings of the thermostat and the air conditioning system as to why it does that. It would be very, as were, unparsimonious. Uh, it'd be very extravagant to say, oh, the only way we can explain what it's doing is by saying it's got a representation of the environment and it's got a purpose, which is to keep the heat within a certain range and it responds to the representation of the environment as being out of that range by coming on and reducing the temperature to that range. That would be extravagant because we have a perfectly other way of explaining it. But with agents like animals, or indeed even complex robots indeed, but certainly with human beings too, it's just so complex. The only way you can make sense of what the cat or the mouse or the dog or even the complex robot and certainly human being is doing is by finding, so to speak, what these entities are trying to do, their purposes, their goals, what they're aiming at, and by having a sense of how they're representing the means available, the opportunities available, and that's to say representing them as agents. But now the issue, though, that comes up when you mention the mechanism is, of course, what makes human beings distinctive. And um, I like to say it's because human beings, we'll come back to corporate agents in a moment if you can allow me this digression, because human beings are, the word I like is they're conversable. What I mean by that at one level very straightforwardly is that we have language and by means of language uh, we are able to identify in sentences the things that we believe. I mean the dog believes that the family is home when he hears the gate or the car pulling up or whatever it is, but the dog has no way of identifying the content of its belief, the family or home. We have, we have a sentence like that. And for anything we're, for most of the things at any rate, we're capable of believing, we can put a sentence on what it is we believe so we can actually think about those contents of belief. And I think that that makes a huge gulf between um, the human and the non-human world because once you have words in this sense, then not only can you identify what it is you actually believe already, you can pick a sentence almost at random. And if you've got evidence available, you can ask yourself, is it true? And if in light of the evidence you decide it is true, you assent to it, you make the judgment that it's true. At that point, if you're working properly, the belief will form within you. So we're actually capable of making up our minds, as we say. Non-human animals, I don't think there's any evidence that in that sense they make up their minds. But not only can we do that, we can communicate to others the mind that we've made up. You know, like you ask me a question out of the blue, do I believe that such and such? Do I believe that Chicago is nearer Detroit than it is New York? I've never asked myself that question in my life before, but I now think, well, is it? And I remember the map of America. That's evidence enough to me. I say, yes, Chicago is nearer Detroit than New York. And at that point, I formed the belief. I've made up my mind. But equally, I've communicated my mind to you because I've, so to speak, publicly made up my mind. I mean, assuming sincerity, I've asserted the sentence. So you just know that that's what I believe, assuming sincerity. And not only that, so that's to say we can both uh, make up our minds and communicate our minds, but we can also commit our minds at third level. Because when I say to you something like, yes, it's nearer Detroit than New York, and you find that I'm acting later as if that weren't the case, I have to plead guilty. I have to admit I was telling you the truth. Or I have to say something like, well, I did change my mind. But what I can't say is that back then when I communicated my belief to you, I must have gotten myself wrong. I mean, a third person could say that if he told you that I believed that Detroit was nearer to Chicago than New York, and then I didn't act as if it were so. And you say to him or her, how could you have said that? That person could say, well, I, I got Philip wrong. You know, I, I'm sure he believes that. I mean, I'm sure I heard him say that or whatever. And he can get off the hook, she can get off the hook by saying that they got me wrong, but I can't get off the hook in that way. So by saying Chicago is nearer Detroit than New York, not only do I convey what I believe, but I'm sort of committed to it in the sense that you can rebuke me in a way in which you can't rebuke the third person, because I can't, I've denied myself an excuse. I've denied myself the excuse of saying I've got myself wrong. The reason I deny myself that excuse is that I made up my mind. I didn't just scan my mind to see what it was like. 
And that's the level at which there's a, the beginnings of commitment. So with language you get making up your mind, communicating your mind, committing, so to speak, yourself. The commitment becomes even stronger when you move from avowing a belief, which is what I've just been talking about, to promising to do something. Because when you promise to do something, as in, I'll be there at six, depend on it, at the theater or whatever, then you know that if I don't turn up and you rebuke me when you find me, how could you have let me down? Not only can I not say, oh, I must have got myself wrong. I thought I intended to be there. I can't do that because I was you know, speaking not just as a self-reporter, but as avowing the intention. But I can't even give the excuse that, well, I changed my mind. Because in promising, you put in the extra bit of not allowing yourself to get off that hook either. So that's where commitment becomes really strong. The idea is that we are agents who, unlike animals, we make up our minds, we communicate our minds to others, and we commit ourselves to one another. And that's what I mean by being a conversable subject. That's really a very rich sense of agency. And some people in philosophy, as we know, prefer to say that animals are not really agents, and that only we count as agents. In my language, there's really only a difference of terminology from those people. I say that animals and human beings are agents, but Human beings are these richer sorts of agents called conversable agents. I think that seems right. You know, what do I have in common with dogs and cats and maybe rats? I don't know. Well, we can both have beliefs, but the fact that I speak a language, whereas dogs and cats don't, you might say, affects the very nature of the beliefs that I can have. Uh, in particular, it gives me these further capabilities we've just been discussing. It gives me the capability to publicly share my beliefs with other people, gives me the ability to, given a hypothetical situation, decide whether I believe that that is the case or it isn't the case, maybe a hypothetical situation that I'm not looking at right now. It gives me the ability to make promises, and more generally, exactly. it, it commits me to the things that I've already publicly asserted my belief in. You know, None of these things we've mentioned are things that dogs and cats can do. Mm -hmm. And thus, you might argue that the, nat the very nature of the beliefs they can have is different. So what about corporations? Can they do these things that people can do but animals can't? Well, let me make the connection. So if we go along with the notion of uh, human beings are conversable agents, another expression for a conversable agent is to say that human beings are persons. There are many senses of person, and there's a moralized sense in which you know, we, we think of persons as special sorts of entities, and babies are persons. I'm not using person in that sense, but there's a sense of being a person. Maybe it's the sense in which we talk about legal persons. And in that sense, what a person is, is an agent who can speak for themselves, and that's precisely what conversability involves, and make up their minds, communicate their minds, commit themselves. Now, one way of putting that is to say that when an, an agent is a person in that sense, he or she is always a spokesperson for themselves. You might say, I like the slogan that goes, no person without a spokesperson. To be a person, to be a conversable agent, is to be a spokesperson, a self-spokesperson. Because when you speak for yourself, you don't speak like the third person I was talking about earlier, who's reporting on your state of mind and who can excuse themselves whenever they get you wrong because they can always say, well, I must have mistaken what they thought. When I speak for myself, I can't get myself off the hook in that way. So once you take, if you go along with this, that they, a conversable agent can be thought of as a person and there's no person without a spokesperson, at that point you see a linkage into the notion of a corporate agent. Because I think of, and this actually is at least implied in, not altogether explicit, in Hobbes's work, who I think is very original on this, he emphasizes that a group can equally have a spokesperson that speaks for it in the way in which we are each spokespersons of ourselves. So you imagine now a collection of people who identify a spokesperson, someone whose words will be taken as words that make up the mind of the group on the issue in question, that communicate the mind of the group, and that commit the group to other people. If you had that sort of entity, it would certainly mimic, I think you'll agree, an individual person. After all, here are a group of people who, in a particular domain, say he or she speaks for us, and they rally behind the words of this spokesperson. At that point, you have a collection of people who are mimicking an individual person. 
And that's the first, I think, step in understanding what a corporate agent is, that it's a collection of people who are spoken for in that way. Once you see that, immediately you can see generalizations, like the spokesperson needn't be a single person. There may be a different spokesperson on different issues, provided the voices are coordinated with one another and the words uttered in committing the group are actually coherent with one another so that the group is coherently committed. There can be many spokespersons, but equally the spokespersons may themselves be many groups, so to speak, who act like committees within the broader group. And now you can also see that the different spokespersons, these different mini groups, may have different levels of importance, some being beneath others reporting to others, just so long as the words that emanate finally from the group are going to be coherent with the other words issued by other subgroups on behalf of the group. It's going to have this behavior of speaking for itself in a way that both communicates its mind and commits itself to others. Now at that point, that sort of group really is very close to, it fits the characterization of a, a person, this special sense of person that I was speaking of in a moment. And that's where I think we move to the corporate level. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. I mean, you've drawn some interesting parallels there, but someone might want to come back and say, look, well, maybe you can talk about corporations in a way that makes them sound like people. So you can you can talk about corporate persons if you like, but that's just a fiction. We don't have real people there. You've just found a way of talking about corporations like they're people. Um, but all you've done is kind of invented these these fictional people. I mean, is there any reason we should think that there's something that actually exists, an agent that actually exists in a corporation in the same way that we think there is with a human being? Good. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you raised that at this point because I said that, you know, much of what I've just said you find at least implicitly in, in Hobbes. And Hobbes, of course, is associated with the view that, I mean, he was quite happy to call groups persons and so on in my special sense of person, but he does describe them as uh, fictive. And one reading of that is that they're just pretend persons. They're not real persons. So these groups are mimicking or simulating the personhood of conversable individuals, but they don't really make themselves into a proper person in their own right. Because at that point, the work that I've been involved in over the last 10 years or so, in particular with Christian List, who's a philosopher at the London School of Economics, becomes relevant. Because what really got me interested in corporate agents, I mean, what I've just said, I could have said to you 10 years ago, I think. We all could have. That's all in Hobbes, in a way. And then what I realized, uh, working actually on some material in law and economics, uh, is that there's a paradox which indicates that when people get together and mimic a conversable agent, mimic a person with words that they commit themselves to and so on, actually it's not so clear that the views they have to commit themselves to, that they form and so on, are actually going to be a reflection, a faithful reflection of the individual. So let me just give you an example and then I'll mention a result to you that I think is quite relevant and important here. And the example is, suppose there are three of us want to form a group agent. So just as we said, we are mimicking a particular person. Let's suppose, oh, maybe we're a committee charged with the business of deciding whether someone should be promoted or not within an academic department. Let's take a university-type example. And we're asked to give a recommendation. What do we think? And we're the ones who are going to have the say. So we have to come up with a coherent answer. We have to be like a, our little committee of three, has to be a conversable agent. We have to be able to give our reasons to people. We have to be able to speak for what we as a group come to think, etc. We have to have a single voice. And maybe one of us is a spokesperson. Since there's so few of us three, we can all speak together, but so long as we speak coherently for us as a group. Okay. Now imagine that uh, we have here Mark, Matt, and Philip. So imagine that Mark... We decide, first of all, or maybe that's university regulations, that the person should be appointed if they're good in research and they're good in teaching. Very straightforward. If they're good in both, we promote them. If not, no. Okay, so the first issue is we review the evidence and now we decide what as a group do we think about how good this person is in teaching. 
do they pass the bar? Are they good enough? And let's imagine that Mark and I think, yes, they are good enough, but Matt thinks, no, they're not. And imagine that we're working by majority voting, the most straightforward sort of method of making up your mind in a group. Well, we're going to say he's good enough at teaching because two of us said that. And now the issue is, is the person good enough in research? And this time, let's imagine that Mark thinks no, but Matt and Philip think yes. So there's now a vote for, yes, he is good enough in teaching. Okay, so this is looking great, isn't it? But then we finally, because we have to do this properly, we say, well, let's take a vote on, should he be appointed? That's to say, are both things true? Well, now, this is interesting. Mark said, no, he's not good enough in research. Matt said, no, he's not good enough in teaching. That means that both of you are going to vote no. I'm the only one that thought he was good enough in both. I'm going to vote yes. But two of the group, you two, are going to vote no to that third question. Now, that means as a group, we're incoherent. Because as a group, we said he's good enough in teaching, he's good enough in research. But no, he's not good enough in both. That's like saying P and Q, but not P and Q. Completely incoherent, right? Now, as a group, if we're going to, you know, imagine going back to the department of the university saying, well, here's the interesting thing. You know, we find we believe he's good enough at teaching, we believe he's good enough in research, but we don't think he's good enough in both. Duh, you know, as they say, as I've learned to say in America, <laughs> they're going to look at, you can't do business with a group like ours in order to, be conversable, right? We have got to be coherent. And so now back in the group, we anticipate all of that. And so we say, what are we going to do, guys? And obviously what we have to do is change our mind as a group on at least one of those issues. The obvious issue on which to change our mind is the third issue. So we say, okay, as a group, we believe he's good enough for teaching, he's good enough in research, and he's good enough in both. Which means on that third issue, and interestingly, as a group, we endorse something that a majority of us reject you two reject it, right? That shows how the cost of being conversable, which we're committed to as a group, is that we can't be a majoritarian reflection of the views of the individuals within the group. Now, I call that the discursive dilemma uh, in something about I did about 2000 or 1999, meaning that as a group we faced a dilemma, which is we either opt for conversability, in which case we don't get majoritarian responsiveness to our individual views, or we opt for responsiveness, in which case we don't get conversability or rationality as a group, if you like. It's a hard choice, a dilemma. You have to go one way or the other. And if we are to behave as a conversable or rational group, then we've got to sacrifice our majoritarian responsiveness. Now, Christian List and I, in 2002, and I couldn't even have dreamt of doing this without Christian's expertise in the area, we published a general called an impossibility result, which actually shows that it's not just a feature of majority voting, but for a whole range of ways in which you might construct out of the individual views, the views of the group, none of them will work. None of them will make the group conversable. None of them will give the group that sort of robust rationality required for being conversable. And since then, there have been seven or eight theorems in an area now called judgment aggregation theory, which show that there really is a very deep tension between a group's being conversable or rational collectively and being individually responsive. And that tells me this, that once a group of individuals get together to mimic personhood by committing themselves to being conversable as a group, at that point... They constitute, so to speak, a mind, meaning just a set of attitudes that they as a group will enact, where that mind is not a systematic reflection of the individuals within the group. It's in fact a new agent. It's an agent which has a set of attitudes that are not derivable from the attitudes of the individual members. And uh, that's now the sense in which you see, if you go along with the story, the broadly Hobbesian story about having a spokesperson a group committing themselves to their words via this spokesperson or spokespersons, what you realize is that in order to achieve that conversability, these individuals have to constitute an agent which has a mind of its own, as I like to put it, meaning a mind that's not derivable from. You couldn't ever tell what it's definitely going to be just from the attitudes of the individuals within it. It's a novel agent. 
Okay, so those considerations give us reason to think that actually groups of people, corporations, can have beliefs and maybe even do things in ways that are over and above what the individual people in the group believe or what the individual people in the group are doing. And in some sense, that means they count as agents in their own right. One reservation you might have about this idea is that it you know, evokes images of what's sometimes called like the hive mind or this sort of spooky metaphysics that allows for groups of people to somehow form a, a zeitgeist, a supernatural zeitgeist that can think and do over and above what things over and above what the individuals can do. What's your response to that worry? Good. Okay. I'm really glad again you asked that because uh, it's very, very important at this point to stress that the result of these arguments, if you go along with the arguments, is that we've got to say of a group agent, it might be, of course, a commercial corporation, might be a church, it might be just a smaller group of people who are committed to a certain enterprise, a partnership or whatever. We've got to say of those entities constituted those group agents that they're not the same agent as their individual members, that they become a new agent. Another way of putting that is you might have the same group of individual people who constitute different group agents. Uh, so, for example, an example I like, in the late 40s, the Indian parliament used to meet as a parliament in the morning and in the afternoon used to meet as a constitutional convention. In each case, the same individuals were involved. So you'd say the two group agents were the same collection of individuals, but they were not the same agent because we individuate agents, we identify agents, think of them as one, insofar as we think of an agent as identified by a set of attitudes, beliefs, desires, and habits of changing those attitudes in light of evidence, an updating rule, as we call it. So what I would want to say is that with any corporate entity, it's the same collection of individuals as the set of individuals involved, the members, but it's just it's not the same agent as the individuals involved. So that it's not as if there's something added to the world in terms of the hard stuff. It's just the same agents that were always there and the same forces that were always operative. It's just that they have chosen to constitute an entity which qua agent a set of attitudes with an updating rule, is actually a distinct agent from the agents that any one of them are. It's not even a systematic function of what they as agents are. So the novelty, the fact that they, I want to say it's a real and uh, not reducible agent does not mean that it's spooky in any sense. That uh, I should say in the history of legal thinking about group agents, you know, the big divide is between broadly a fiction theory that we talked about earlier and a real entity theory. Now, what Christian List and I are committed to is something like a real entity theory. Group agents are real agents, and they're novel agents in addition to the agents who constitute them. So if you're counting the agents in the room, you've got to count the group agent as well as the individual agents. But we're not committed to, while we're committed to that real entity theory, we're not committed to any spooky metaphysics. Now, the real entity theory was often mocked in the early part of the 20th century. It had been associated with Otto Gierke, a German legal historian who introduced this whole theory, the real entity theory, on the basis of medieval origins, as he rightly thought. But he was associated in legal thought with a sort of spooky metaphysics. So what we want to argue is you can get the reality of group agents without any spooky metaphysics. So maybe one way of putting the point that you just made in terms of the example we were discussing earlier of the three of us as a committee is that we could be sitting in this room discussing this candidate and someone could come in and ask us, so is this person getting tenure, getting promoted? And we could say something like, well... It depends whose views you're asking for. You know, do you want Philip's views? Do you want Matt's views? Do you want Mark's views? Or do you want the committee's views? And your point is that that fourth thing, the committee's view, is not just, as you put it, derivable from the first three. You know, if the person's walked in and you've given them Philip's views, Matt's views, and Mark's views, there's still something more you need to tell them, the committee's views. And that's what it is for the group to be a real agent. Is that something like the right way of putting it? It is. And that actually also, to go back to that earlier conversation, it shows you the sense in which we've got to give group agents rights. Because remember now, any conversable agent, right, which is going to relate to other conversable agents, which in the nature of the case they do, because conversability is associated with communication and commitment, there have to be rules that specify for conversable agents 
at least if they're going to be coordinated in their interactions, there have to be rules that specify exactly the interactions that are allowed to each and those that are forbidden. For example, you want to rule out the use of violence or whatever and rule in the negotiation or exchange or whatever it might be discussion. Now, if we're going to allow group agents form, then it w- that won't make any sense unless we at the very same time establish that there are certain sorts of things they could do and certain things they can't do. So in that sense, they've got to be given rights. So back to your committee. It wouldn't make sense for the university to establish us as a committee to report on a committee view on the merits of this candidate or a whole range of candidates, whatever, unless they gave us the right, for example, of being heard on that topic and presumably of of gathering in order to form our views, etc. We as a group have got to be given that right, else we wouldn't exist. I mean, it just wouldn't make sense. So the very notion of coercible agency requires rights. And I would say that if you're going to go the way I go, you have to say that just as rights are essential for individual human beings to conduct their lives together in a coordinated way, similarly rights are essential for group agents to be allowed to form and for them to conduct their lives together with individual human agents and with other corporate agents in a coordinated way. Rights are an essential part of the package. So I say that we we grant all of that. We're convinced that the corporations do need to have rights. But should they have the same kinds of rights as people? I mean, we... We're still inclined to think, I guess the first thing I said, these are really different kinds of things. Uh, So what kinds of rights are corporations going to have? Or another way of asking, what are the limits of the kinds of rights that we could give to corporations or groups? Okay, so now at this this point, I have to reveal to you that I'm a two-handed theorist. You know, I've given a lot with the one hand so far to group agents and, you know, particular corporate agents and commercial corporations included. But now I quickly take back. Okay, so here's where I take back. I've said that it's essential for the very existence of any conversable agent, including group agents, that they should be given rights, determinate areas of behavior where they're allowed to do it as they wish, for example. But I have not said that they should have the same rights as individual human agents. And that, of course, raises the question, well, what's the criterion whereby you determine the rights that we ought to give to these group agents? Now, there are two, as were, prominent salient views here. One would say that every agent deserves to be treated as the equal of every other agent. So that in determining the rights to be given to agents, we should have equal concern with the good of all agents. Call that agentialism, if you like, from the word agent. Now, that would suggest, of course, that corporate agents, since they're agents by my criterion, their good ought to be taken into account as much as the good of individual human beings when we're determining what rights both they and individual human beings should have. The other theory is, if you like, humanism that says, no, in looking at what rights both individual human beings should have and corporate entities should have, we should only be concerned with the good of individual human beings, taken, of course, as, as equals, say, in a given community. That second view, humanism, or if you like, normative individualism, that actually would have the effect, of course, of giving priority to individual human beings and giving rights to corporate agents only insofar as that's good for individual human beings. And that's the view that I take. Very briefly, the reason is this, that um, it's individual human beings who create corporate agents and as those who've been associating with one another in various ways, And so if we're going to allow certain individual human beings amongst us to associate in a way that creates corporate agents, we should look to the equal good of us individual human beings around and only allow some associate to create the corporate agents insofar as that's okay by everybody. It doesn't do damage to the relationships between individuals. Now you might say, well, wait a moment, we say that individual human beings should be free to have babies, etc., but we wouldn't allow people to have babies on the condition that they will then treat the babies, the children, as their slaves in later life. We insist on the rights of the children in advance, so to speak, of their procreation. And some might say, well, shouldn't we insist on the rights of the corporate agents that these individuals are going to create in associating with one another? And I say there's a very big difference between children and between corporations in that way. Uh, The main source of the difference, of course, is that while children 
break away from their parents. Corporations never do. They're always constituted by the individuals who are operating within them. They never break free, so to speak, of their, the associating individuals who constitute them. And the reason that makes a difference is that or the way to bring out the difference between children and corporations in that respect, I always think, is to notice the following. If you did treat corporations like children, then just as you'd have to say people should never be allowed to have children when the children are then subject to constraints that the parents are not subject to, you'd have to say, well, equally, people shouldn't be allowed to associate and create corporate entities except insofar as they give those corporate entities the rights that they themselves have. But that really would be crazy because it would be to say that, for example, it would be wrong for people to form a partnership rather than a proper company with limited liability because they'd be denying the corporate agent they constitute. A partnership is a corporate agent, but not with the same rights as a company because it doesn't have limited liability, for example. That those people, it would be a moral offence to allow people to create partnerships without those partnerships becoming full limited liability companies. Or just think back in the history of commercial corporation, for example. We used to require corporations to exist only for a certain period of time. Later, we allowed them to exist indefinitely, as we do now. We used to require of corporations that when they were set up, they had to be set up by an individual act of parliament or congress. Now you can set up a corporation just by going to a notary or whatever. Uh, we used to require that when set up a corporation can only act within a certain sphere of activity. If you're in textiles, you're in textiles forever. You can't become a banking corporation, for example. Now we allow corporations change. We used to allow forbid corporations from owning other corporations, but now, long since, we allow corporations. You'd have to say that it's inherently wrong, it would be inherently wrong of anyone, to only go, so to speak, a half measure. And that's sort of quite crazy. But that's where you'd be led by being an agentialist. I argue, therefore, we ought to be the other salient position. I won't talk about mixed positions. We ought to be humanists or individualists in thinking that it's only the good of individual human beings that counts in determining what rights ought to be given in law and practice to individual human beings and to the corporate entities that they form. So that's going to argue, therefore, that while these corporate entities should have rights, of course, otherwise they can't exist or operate, we should determine what rights they have only by reference to the good of individual human beings, with those individual human beings taken as equals, of course. So what do you think is the ultimate upshot of this view that we're calling humanism or individualism? Like, what would be some examples of the bad things that can happen if we accord corporations too many rights, that is to say that uh, we accord them not just the rights that they're owed on the basis of what's the good of individual people? Well, first of all, by background, I think it's worth noticing that we now have in our world far, far more corporate entities than the world of 200 years ago, for example. The most salient factor, I would say, or one of the most that distinguishes our world from earlier worlds is that we're surrounded by corporations. Most of us belong to a whole variety of them, of course, from universities to churches to townships that matter to countries to states, let alone commercial corporations. And that it is very important that we get clear about exactly what rights we should give these corporate entities, whether in the commercial sphere or in other spheres, because they're so powerful. Now, let me just concentrate on the commercial sphere, maybe, to make things simpler. I think that if we're going to give them rights that really look after the good of individual human beings, of course there'll be different theories about what the good we should be looking after at the level of individual human beings is, and different political philosophies will give you different answers, but I think most will agree that if that's what you're looking to, the good of individual human beings, that's really going to argue for putting quite serious limitations on the rights that we should give to corporate entities. So just to give you, I think that there are really four categories where we need to be, four areas where we need to be particularly careful about the rights that we give corporate entities. So I think it's very important in setting up a corporate entity that we allow as a society that all individuals within that entity have at a certain level a sort of possibility of equal reciprocal 
complaint against one another. None stand, so to speak, in a position of an unchallengeable authority over others where they could dominate others or oppress them. Of course, that applies in many cases. For example, it applies in the cases of religious sects and so on. I would say that we ought to have laws that, as we do often have laws, that guard against the sort of, we know, oppression and domination that occur within those groups. In particular, I think, and this is the second category, in looking at the organization of groups, we should be careful that the way in which they're governed from on top, those in the controlling positions, doesn't mean that the groups can be directed to the benefit of those on top and to the detriment of those who are in weaker positions. Now, I think, as a matter of fact, for example, in commercial incorporation as it exists, for example, in America today, it really is worrying that a commercial corporation has the right to, for example, exercise patronage of various kinds, in particular political patronage, as in giving money to support a particular political cause or a particular political individual or party for that matter, because in effect what that does is it gives that power to those in authority, the CEO and his or her sort of immediate colleagues within the corporation without really adequate control, either by shareholders or by workers, other employees within the corporation, because corporations are set up to make money, and after all, the great source of accountability is the stock market, but the stock market doesn't reflect the exercise of patronage of this kind, so that we give these individuals, in giving corporations the right to make political donations, we're in effect giving these individuals a right to use the resources of the corporation without control from within by other members in a way that can buy them as individuals particular favors. Uh, that's just a, one example. Now the third and fourth sort of categories, so the first two are within the corporation, that we should limit rights in such a way that within the corporation there isn't either unfairness in how some individuals can treat others and particular unfairness of a political kind in the way in which the organization is governed from on top. The other two categories relate to the public world, whether we political advantage in the wider society over others. And there are clear examples here. I mean, to take that third category, the fact of we know that within our world as it is at the moment, um, corporations have enormous advantages, and that in effect means the individuals who are benefiting from that corporation have enormous advantages when it comes to dealing with, say, other individual agents within the courts, because the corporate entities have very deep pockets for a start, uh, secondly, because they have actual legal privileges that individuals often don't have. So, for example, at the moment, the Supreme Court is at least about to consider the issue of whether corporations can be held culpable under the alien torts law, that's to say for offenses they committed outside the United States when they're based in the United States, whether they can be held responsible under alien torts law when it's granted that individuals can be held responsible under that. That's just a small example of a pattern of asymmetry between the rights, the legal rights of corporate entities and individual entities actually before the courts. And the another factor there is, of course, that corporations also have enormous psychological powers because they don't suffer the anxieties. They don't even face death in the way in which individuals do. So if you've got individuals battling against a corporation in the courts, for example, for compensation for environmental damage done, hard not to think of the Exxon Valdez example in this instance, the corporation can go on delaying things forever and ever and ever. It, in principle, could exist forever and ever as long as the race continues. Whereas individuals, you know, their lives are shortened, their horizons are, are nearer. And so you get a greater symmetry there. So that I think we really should think hard about the legal position of corporations in relation to individuals like that, and the asymmetry that currently exists, and how that can be righted. And then the fourth category, of course, we give corporations now in America enormous advantages, especially since Citizens United, insofar as they can spend their money on uh, in support of political causes and even in effect in support of political parties, even individuals. And the reason why that's unfair is the following. People say, well, that's just freedom of speech. They've got freedom of speech like we all have and corporations should have this. That's really a big mistake because I think it confuses freedom of speech with opportunity for speech. 
So, for example, in an assembly, we say a town meeting, everyone's got freedom of speech. That's great. But of course, we all know that if everybody speaks at the same time, nobody gets heard. So there has to be a rationing system. The rationing system we exercise in a town meeting is something like Robert's Rules of Order. So people speak in turn. Everyone gets freedom of speech. Everyone gets access to the rostrum. You ration the rostrum under Robert's Rules of Order. What happens in the public world of our democracy, of course, is that we, the rationing system we've evolved, at least in the United States, it varies in some other countries, is that um, different political voices can command the rostrum insofar as they can pay. They've got the money to pay up. And, you know, that's a traditional rationing system. You pay for access to the rostrum, in this case, to the media. However, once you allow corporations unlimited expenditure in supporting voices, what you're in effect doing is you're undermining that, potentially anyhow, undermining that rationing system because now the enormous resources of corporations can simply swamp out, you know, the resources that individuals can contribute. Uh, Of course, you know, the last election suggests maybe I'm wrong about that, that individuals can come up. But I bet in the long run, you know, uh, when that was probably sponsored in the last election by a certain outrage over Citizens United. Once that dies down and becomes the corporate entities with their deep purses are going to be there constantly ready to put their money behind the political voices they like. Now that's giving enormous power to certain individuals, in particular the individuals running those corporations, because these are not like political action groups where people join up because of their political interests. These are bodies where people put their resources in order to make money and those at the helm are now given a right under which they're not really accountable to other members, the shareholders or the workers, as I said earlier. And they have this capacity to swamp, so to speak, the airwaves, you know, by drowning out the other voices. I think that's clearly a fourth category in which we really need to worry about the the rights the corporations are currently actually enjoying. So while I'm all for going back to the hurl of free enterprise, holding corporations responsible as every conversable agent should be held responsible for what they do within their area of allowed activity. At the same time, I want to insist that the areas of activity allowed to corporate entities, the rights that they should be allowed, should be severely curtailed, being determined not on the basis of the good of corporate entities, but the good of individual human beings. Philip Pettit? The group consisting of Mark and myself enjoyed this very much, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 